doctors practice medicine and, you know, professional athletes practice, they go to practice. And so when I learned, you know, writing, like creative writing, it was a practice for me. And so when we shift our mindset and, and focus on what we're doing as a practice or a process rather than a product, then it changes everything. It allows us that clear space to create without worrying about who's going to buy it, what's it worth, da, 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 all that stuff. This is the Bold Bitch Podcast, where I dive deep into conversations around taboo topics. I'm your gay, ADHD-having, and compulsively curious host, Gia Goodrich, and among many things, I have a very low tolerance for bullshit. So each week, I have intriguing conversations with experts, tastemakers, rebels, and rule breakers who choose to boldly show up and own their opinions in this crazy call-out culture we live in. Speaking your mind and trusting your gut isn't easy, but the boldest, truest version of yourself is exactly what the world needs. Hello. Hi. How are you? I am so excited for this episode because uh, this guest and I just like clicked so hard. She is just a cannon of energy and glitter and fun and vibrancy. And I just, it's going to come at you through osmosis. You're going to fucking love her in this conversation. I also just wanted to like share a little bit about what's happened to me. So I went on a retreat this last week with Jesse Dooley from episode, can't remember the number, but like with Pink, she's a reckless optimist. And she had this retreat that was just so amazing about moving your body and reframing the context that you're in. And just, it was this super powerful group of like 14 women and we all just bonded so hard, so hard. It was so amazing to feel connected. It was in Zion. So I went canyoneering and not to do to my own horn, but Grant, who was the guide, told somebody else later that in his 20 years of canyoneering experience, he had never seen anybody who was as fearless as me, which I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, but I took it as a point of pride. So one of the things that was so amazing is like at the last night in the campfire, we had this conversation about what was the best part of the trip, whatever. And what I shared was that I was nervous to go because I don't really have a lot of straight women in my life. I've been rolling around with lesbians, non-binary folks, and gay men for a long time, but I don't really have like a group of women. There's one group from high school that we've, you know, gotten older together. I see them about once a year and they're fucking phenomenal. I love them. But I just have had a lot of like weirdness around feeling accepted around a lot of these women. And spoiler alert, they're all like gorgeous and have these really intense movement practices so they could like show up and like bench press your mama. And I was coming into this knowing that I am pretty out of shape and that a lot of them, which they did, had a lot of them had blonde hair and, you know, just had, and actually Veronica, who's just amazing, I actually ended up sharing with her that like she was triggering to me in this way because she's just like, 
life and blonde and blue eyes and like the beautiful smile and just pleasant temperament. That to me was like the popular girl in high school that was like really rude to me and made me feel inferior and whatever. And so it was so amazing to be able to create and forge a connection with her. And she's so amazing and funny and kind and wonderful. And I feel like there were just so many opportunities for that for those assumptions about who people would be and then to really have them in the most delightful way be changed, transmuted, and and to hear deeper into people's stories. And I had this one moment with Kim, who I love you if you're listening to this, Kim Sizemore, I love you. We just had this moment of like deep vulnerability and one of those There are just these moments in life where you just realize, like, I am exactly where I need to be in this moment. And I'm so grateful for the connection and for, like, being able to be here for this human or having a human there to witness me. And I just, I cannot say enough. So I came back from this retreat into my normal life where it's like you're with all these people and it's amazing and you have roommates. And then I go back to my place where it's just me talking to myself. I felt invigorated to change my life in a meaningful way. I've realized that for me, I have really not prioritized movement and fitness and health. And I've really not prioritized talking to myself in a kind way and really allowing myself to feel my feelings. I mean, even I'm rolling my eyes to myself as I'm saying this because it's just like, oh, I sound like a Hallmark card. Anyways, I just wanted to share with you that I'm on this journey of really just deciding who the fuck I want to be and ferociously showing up as that bitch. That's all. Enjoy the episode. Today's guest is a cancer-dodging, viral campaign-concepting, innovation-cultivating, creative trespasser. Her accolade-filled career has moved between theater, fine art, tech, and self-development in a way that few of us believe could be even possible. And precisely because she's made a name for herself as an artful rebel, her ideas have been sought after by some of the world's most impactful companies, including TED, Amazon, Google, Uber, and trust me, there are many more. But even before knowing who she was, I was 100% moved by her viral campaign, It Was Never a Dress, which turned one of the most ubiquitous symbols, the sign for the women's restroom, into one that has inspired over 80 million people to see women for the superheroes they are. And her award-winning book, Creative Trespassing, How to Put the Spark and Joy Back into Your Work and Life, is the definitive roadmap for thinking outside of the box while working in one. She's a lightning rod of knowledge, joy, and corkerific fabulosity, the triumphantly bold bitch, Tanya Katan. Ready? (laughs) Okay, that's... The best introduction, please don't tell anybody else who's interviewed me, best (laughs) introduction to a podcast ever. Thank you. And and you know, I don't, I don't bullshit it. 
because I'm a writer too. Right. And you're writing and way of weaving in everything I've done. It's like, if my, if my mom was like a really good writer, that's it, like some, an introduction. She'd be like, Tanya has a lightning rod. She's anyway, the best. Like, okay. Well, I'm yeah. going to make like a secret award for myself that I'll just put in my room <laughs> since I can't like share it with anybody. Um, just to, you know, sleep better at night knowing you said it was, that. it was awesome. I was so impressed. I don't even know what to say. I'm like embarrassed. It's so good. <laughs> Why, hello. Consider this your personal invitation to the Bold Bitch Mafia. It's our private community where you get all sorts of bonuses and perks. Now, I know you're probably multitasking. You're probably either driving or running or running errands, whatever the situation is. So I want you to just embed this in your brain. Remember it. So when you can safely pull out your phone, do the following. Go to oldbitch.com slash mafia and join our free membership that gives you access to all sorts of bonuses like full video episodes and our secret show, The Bold Bitch Debrief. That is where we can hang out, build community and take over the world. It's free. All you have to do is go to boldbitch.com slash mafia. And I'll see you there. The thing that I just love about researching you and getting to know you in this stalkerish way is that you have so much content out there and you're really leading with stories. Mm -hmm. And I just, as somebody who's existing in this space and leveraging a lot of the stuff I've been through, I feel like the way you do it. So there's a part of me that's like low-key envious at the way that you can say a this is to this as this is to this. And it's always something I never, ever, ever would have thought of that I'm just like, Yep. That's perfect. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they're the most like hilarious things too. And I, of course I can't think of one off the top of my head, but yeah. Well, you know, well, I, actually you're making me think of one piece of content I just put up yesterday on um, Instagram. You know, imposter syndrome is such a, like a thing we all talk about and, you know, corporate culture and everyday life, um, especially for women and BIPOC folks and non-binary folks. It's like we, a lot of us feel, have been trained to feel like imposters. Right. And I was giving a talk for a big company called TJX. They, they own TJ Maxx and all these stores where I shop for real. Um, and a lot of women, you know, they were asking, hey, like I have imposter syndrome. How do I deal with this? And these are highly accomplished, cool, amazing human beings. Yeah. And um, when they said that, I, some, for some reason, I thought, oh, syndrome. Oh, my gosh. You know what that sounds like? Something else. It sounds like system. And so I said, you're not an imposter. The system is. It should be called imposter system, not imposter syndrome, because syndrome places the onus on us. And since they're very, a lot of systems that are broken and that work really hard to invite some people in and keep a lot of people out. And yes. um, so a lot of times it fools those of us who are outsiders and weirdos and amazing humans into thinking that we don't belong in those spaces. But in fact, we do belong in those spaces. So oh, um, that is so yeah. resonant with me because I feel like one of the biggest trappings of that school of thought or just the way that we internalize it is that we feel like we're the only person who's going through that. And then when you see and you talk to and you share, you realize, oh my gosh, like all of these people, like I see it a lot as a photographer where I've worked with somebody who's like a really big deal or worked with a model who's fucking flawless. And then they, you bust through their barrier and they start unloading all of their like crazy imposterness on you. And you're just like, oh my gosh, we are all just five-year-olds who are worried about yeah. being picked last for T-ball. 
Totally. We're all just so little. And yeah. sometimes we just look a little bit bigger. I mean, I would, I all my, you know, I coach, like I use creativity to coach leaders of like companies, organizations, da, da, da. these are people that I'm just like, you want to work with me, you know, like, and their imposter syndrome cloak on. And it's astounding. It's because we've been taught for years that our shit has to match what we're doing. Otherwise we don't belong there. I mean, that's like the whole premise for me writing creative trespassing is finding myself in all these weirdo corporate jobs and nobody sort of looked like me or acted like me. And I realized, oh, I'm actually really necessary. And in fact, I had layers that weren't here before, and now they can't live without them. Oh, and there are others like me too. It's just that nobody, you know, it's like I became the Pied Piper of creativity. And I'm like, follow me. Are you, are you creative? They're like, yes, on the side, I'm a graphic designer. I love dancing. I'm a playwright. I just never get to express that. And I didn't know I could express that at work. And I'm like, you can. Ooh. Right. That's well, and I love how even some of it is just like, let's go outside over a lunch break. Yeah. What a concept, you know, and like just really disrupting these because I feel like we all get into these grooves of expectation, just like the rut of what we code as being uh, these banal routines that we're in. And sometimes it really takes that kind of disruptor person to come in and, and ask these questions. Like, well, why is it the way this is? And so here's my question, because you and I are like cut from the same beautiful, fabulous, sparkalicious cloth. Totally. As a fellow disruptor, before I was coded as being in a position of power and status, which by the way, it's like never enough for me, but you know, now people are coming to me for exactly the thing that I do, but I've always been that way. And existing in these systems was very difficult because yes, there were always these people who were like, Ooh, this is secretly really awesome. But then there were a lot of people who really found it deeply disturbing mm -hmm. that I was challenging the status quo. So can you just talk about the time before you were this, you know, the big deal campaign building coach to amazing people, person that you are, what it was like being a disruptor then. I was sad and lonely. I, I cried sometimes by myself and sometimes with others. I found comfort in women. No, um, <laughs> uh, you know, that, like you're saying, Gia, you know, the, the same cloth that we are cut from is that we, it's almost like in spite of ourselves, we cannot fit in, you know, it's like my hair is determined to spike up, even if I put on a corporate baseball cap, you know? Right. And so I, I found that I couldn't be anybody but myself in different situations. And there's one like professional situation that comes to mind um, when I was working at a museum and you think like a museum it was a contemporary art museum, Smoka, Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art. I love you. Mm -hmm. And um, they hired me to break the rules of the museum. But when I started doing that by making these sort of irreverent videos that showed that museums were just as like weird and um, not very exciting, mundane and awesome as any other workplace. Um, I, I started to get a little bit of pushback. Yeah. And um, soon because, you know, there were stakeholders, uh, you know, I would go to a meeting and like the board would were like, what's Tanya doing? It looks like she's just running around having fun, like she's not working at all, you know, as if like work and fun were somehow mutually exclusive concepts. 
But what I realized in that context was my disruption wasn't to just be an a-hole. Like I wasn't just running around with a videographer trying to capture museum life for no reason. It was to use storytelling in my background in theater to see, well, who's our audience that's not coming to the museum? Why aren't they coming in? Maybe they feel like museums are austere and uninviting. Maybe they feel like they're not being seen or heard. So if I can show them that museums are mundane and weird and wonderful, just like the workplace that they find themselves in, then maybe they'll go, oh, that's not so pretentious. Maybe I'll come in through the door. So through these videos and then some um, real programs that I made that people thought I was crazy, I bought an arm wrestling table. What kind of idiot does that? Um, I made One of my favorite stories, especially- Coming from the art background that I come from, like this very institutional world, thinking about you putting an arm wrestling table in the middle of a situation and like arm wrestling for art. Like that just gave me the biggest like jolt of delight (laughs) thinking about people being legitimately shocked at that idea. Okay, well, I'll tell you what I didn't write about or tell anybody about because it it would have freaked everyone out. So I decided, okay, I'm going to find a ubiquitous way for a museum to give away art to people, whether they have money or not. Let's arm wrestle for it. Awesome. So I buy an arm wrestling table and I'm like, well, I I better do some research. Like, I don't even know what that even means. So I went to a mall in in Phoenix, Arizona, because there was an arm wrestling competition and I entered it. And I... I'm not gonna say that like I was awesome because I'll just tell you I won. But um, I think the young woman was maybe 13 that I beat at the end and that's fine. She was scrappy and very mean spirited. Um, I won, but before that I witnessed around with these guys and one guy broke the other guy's arm. I repeat, it was like, it was like a chicken wing, just like flapping. And I was like, and so after that, Gia, I made sure that the waiver that I had people sign when they came to the museum was very robust. So I wouldn't lose my job. I didn't know that was even a possibility that one human could break another human's arm during a mall arm wrestling competition. Anyway, um, but it was great because then in in the museum came like gym people, like people who work out, um, like grandmas and grandpas came and they were trash talking and throwing down and, you know, art historians and sort of everyone in between, like a real wide net was cast and they came into the museum and really loved this new life that was happening, you know, because we think museums, we can't touch anything. We can't make any noises. We can't. Why not? You know, yeah. not? and so that was a really, that was a fun. So then, but of course the whole organization, except for my boss and our team, like pushed back and said, I sucked until I could show them that I increased revenue streams. I increased audience attendance. So I ticked all the corporate boxes that were actually my job. And once I could show that, then they, there was nothing they could do except for cry silently and find the comfort of right. women. <laughs> Scribble in their journals. Fuck Tanya, I'm so annoyed by yeah, all over of this. And over and over and over again. That's right. <laughs> oh, she makes me so mad. But people were, they were mad. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because you know what I, I also discovered is that joy, like living in a state of joy is very confrontational to people who have not chosen to live in a state of joy, which I didn't know before that moment. I just thought I'm having fun and I'm bringing everyone with me. And some people were just hanging on with like a couple of dirty fingernails to feeling like shit, you know, they're just like, I just want to feel miserable and you can't show me another way of being in the workforce like that. See, and that is so, there are so many threads in there that I want to pull on, but that is such a powerful just thing to sit with that. And, and it reminds me, I think I always butcher 
quote attribution, but somebody more awesome and smart than me said something about you need to shine your light. And if people are asking you to dim your light, you're doing a disservice, right? And that some people will be threatened by it, whatever. It was a great quote, I'm sure uh, that I'm butchering. But it just is so resonant, this idea that even living fully embodied in yourself and trusting your gut and experiencing joy for people who are disconnected from that, who experience fear around that, it can be deeply threatening. Yeah. And when that happens, a lot of people cave because it's easier to cave within systems and mute your like this happens so often, like even in conversations when it's like, how are you? Like, I just had a conversation with somebody who's going to air on the podcast soon, who's just fucking phenomenal. And they were saying, like, I am really fucking joyful right now. I know this is a crazy hard time in the world and I want to be aware of that. But I just experienced this thing that was so affirming, so amazing that I'm fucking giddy. And I think about even with that, how many people feel like, oh, I better not express all of that. Yeah, it's well, there's two things I think about. I think about a famous, awesome person that, <laughs> that would be on my podcast if she was alive. A quote from Audre Lorde, whom I love, who's like my person, one of my mm. teachers, you know, that is perfect for what you're talking about. And it goes something like, when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcome. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak knowing that we were never meant to survive. And so to your point, the reason why this, this quote, I carry it with me in my body, is that it's about mortality. You know, it's sort of like there's a finite amount of time that we are here on this earth. And so if we choose to shrink away, to, to like leave the light, that's a choice for surezies. And we have another choice too, is to be bold in the face of it. So, you know, it's like being alive is living in the face of death, right? We yes. know that there's an expiration date. And then to your point, of course, you know, we're in, we're not, not just now that we're in a moment of upheaval and war and violence. This is humanity. And just because those things are happening doesn't mean that the other things aren't happening too. It, we, a lot of times we forget that we coexist, that we all have fear and anger, and we also have joy and calmness or lightness. So a lot of times, especially in like America and like a puritanical society, we like to compartmentalize shit, you know, because that makes it like, we're just like, I'm pure. And then we're like, murder somebody, you know, right. um, or we colonize the stuff. Yush. You know, yeah, the yush, you know, the yush, hashtag the yush. And so the reality is when we embrace all the parts of ourselves, then we start to live fully. Then it's not a question of, am I in my light? Am I playing big? Am I playing small? I'm just being me and continuing to learn and grow and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, this is, I'm obsessed with the merging or the intersection of things that don't make sense together or that seemingly don't make sense together, but actually, you know, create humor or create healing or create something larger than the two things that we think don't exist at the same time. So. Yes, absolutely. So one thing to circle back, and then I want to come back to where we are, which going by my memory is probably not going to happen, but those are low-key my intentions. I am curious about, like, I remember in the book, which I fucking loved, by the way, you talk about this instance of being an intern and having all of your same, like, <laughs> disruptive mentality juju going on, but really not having, like, the strategic implementation. And so it comes off as, like, this bratty, snide, <laughs> 
little baby who doesn't know, which by the way, that was so 100% resonated with me because I got my MFA in 2011, thought I was a big deal, swinging my deck everywhere, got an internship and thank God he's still one of my good friends. It was like, and it was at a museum, actually a museum for science and industry. It's OMSI here. And he was like three bosses above me. So I shouldn't even be in his office. But there were so many conversations where I just swing the door open and be like, Mark, oh, I'm so, my creativity is being truncated by all of these systems in R&D and we're moving on a different timeline. And how about I just do this? And he would just kind of look at me with his wisdom, which is just unmatched. And he would give me the rope. And more often than not, I would fucking hate myself because I didn't have like the systems or, oh or the experience to be able to carry things out. So I'm so I'm curious about your experience with the disruptor with no context, no history, no like chops to back it up mm-hmm. versus the disruptor who has all of that and can really take that disruption in a way that's constructive. You are the really the first person who's ever talked about that part in my book. I, <laughs> Gia, like there's so many firsts and this is very exciting. Yay, um, I'm winning. That makes I, me so happy. I don't even know. Like I wrote, I wrote that piece again. I, there, there's more that happened. I was a, such a jerk um, as an intern. I literally showed up at this magazine and I'm like, um, hey guys, I'm here. And, and they had a full staff of like, are real journalists and real writers and all this. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to awards at my college <laughs> and um I was just like get you a cappuccino get your own f and cappuccino it was horrible and I did not part well with the boss at the time it was horrible I was just um running on ego and to your point the hard lesson that I've learned and when I work with clients now <laughs> who also are grappling with issues of ego is that my foundation should always be serving the larger organization that I've decided to work with. You know, mm-hmm. nobody made me be an intern. I applied, got accepted, and said, yes, thank you. And then showed up and I said, this sucks. You guys suck. And I'm so much better. Okay? And you don't appreciate me. And it's so torturous. Holy, yeah. Get, yeah. You get me a cappuccino if you know what I mean. Oh, okay. Um, totally. It was like, so the hard lesson that I've learned is, that if we are serving those organizations that we work for, and like the example from my days at Smoka, if I'm giving what I came to do, if my job description said, create revenue streams, grow audience, and I'm doing all those things in a respectful way, how I get there is totally up to me. And also, you know, a team of, of supportive people who want diverse thinkers, diverse doers, you know, diversity mm-hmm. in all directions. So, you know, you also need a, a team of people who supports the sort of like the outlier or the disruptor and bringing them or the outsider inside to do this work. Because it's it's hard work to do. I mean, that's why I get brought into companies. I'm not saying anything that your colleagues aren't saying to you. It's just that I'm an outsider. So sometimes that works to our benefit is, you know, I've come from like the, the future and a DeLorean and I open it up and I have a puffy vest on and, you know, I've got wisdom that you already know. But because I'm outside of your everyday like, purview, you'll you'll sometimes listen. 
And also having a foundation, look, I'll be the first to, to admit that when I am working with somebody, like I'm hiring a coach to work with me, mm-hmm. um, or I'm hiring people to work with me, I'll look at their resume, I'll look at their bio, I want to know that they have some foundation for the disruption that they're doing in the world. If it's just some bullshit, like ego, like, I just think things suck, and so I want to make it, whatever. Um, I need to know where what your background is, is a visual arts, do you coming from HR? Um, do you read? What books? Like, I'm astounded at how many people don't read and um, haven't and don't have teachers that they can acknowledge. I, I was um, interviewing somebody that I want to work with, and I'm like, "Well, who are your teachers?" And they're like, "Like, well, in high school, I had." I'm like, "No, like, who do you continue? <laughs> who do you continue to read or take courses from?" or watch, or I mean, and so once we fill our buckets and we have a point of reference, our foundation to leap from, then I think disruption, it's game on. Yeah, see, and I think that's such an important point because there's just with you and some of the experiences that I'm sure we'll dig into more, you just get this sense that through life and choices, you've been humbled a few times. And I think that that is the key ingredient if you are a disruptor. And I think for myself, it's the same thing. Like there were, there were a lot of times when I had to fall flat on my face to be able to understand the things I need to do to then be able to come into a situation and say, Hey, here's how we could do things better. You might not have thought of this, whatever. But I definitely used to have the like classic millennial entitlement complex, (laughs) Uh, especially after I had a couple degrees behind me. That just carried, like you said, just a lot of it was ego, but a lot of it also was this internal guidance system, knowing that there was something I had to bring to the table and knowing that I could maybe see connections between things that other people couldn't see. And I feel like that is a tough road to navigate. And one of the things in your book that I just loved still in that section was talking about how sometimes you can only express it to yourself in your own notebook. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. right. but keep getting it out, keep working totally. through it. But because sometimes legitimately it isn't the context for you. It totally. isn't the ship that you can mm-hmm. change its course in any capacity. Totally. And, you know, that's something I reminded myself. I mean, I worked a lot of shitty jobs. <laughs> I, I worked a lot of shitty jobs and I also had a shitty attitude. So that was shitty times Two. That was fantastic amount of shit. And so what I would do in order to maintain my well-being and my like verve is I would write, you know, writing is my foundation for every creative endeavor I do, everything I teach, coach, writing, it starts first. So I would wake up, you know, five in the morning and go to a cafe and write a play or, you know, work on something, then go to work. Then on my break, I would go and write some more. And so a lot of times when we can't express our disruptive natures at work, as long as we have an outlet for them so that it doesn't feel like we're letting the best parts of ourselves go away. Although I would make the case, and I do make the case in in my book, for bringing some of um, your creative endeavors that you love outside of your job, your nine-to-fiver, inside, too. Yeah, because a lot of people forget. I mean, there's so many easy bridges from outside to inside. People think that like a lot of weekend warriors, like I'll just like white knuckle my job during the week. I don't care if it sucks and I suck and a lot of sucking, but not Mm -hmm. shit like Tanya. She's full of shit, Um, but like a lot of sucking. And then on the weekends, I'll like I'll jam out with my friends because we have a jazz band. 
you know? And it's like, well, why don't you actually conduct an all hands meeting in the style of jazz, which means that, you know, you do jazz improv. Everything is right. Every You have a brainstorm, no wrong answers, no wrong notes. You're just jamming on ideas or problem solving from within your company, something that you have to do anyway. So why not do it in a cool, creative way? Yes, I love that so much. And I really, I feel like there was a, a split in my path where mm -hmm. I took the road that I am in now. And there's like this moment where I could see myself very much aligned with where you are at now when it was... Yeah. The, okay. Let me just go into like this little quick story. So I go, I got laid off from OMSI because of cuts or whatever. And then I got this job that was ostensibly about photography and it was for this like antique hardware company. And I get in there and it's like, we need you to meticulously photograph and catalog all of these various pieces with the different finishes. And I was just like banging my head against the wall. And I just, my way out was, okay, well, what can I see that's not here? Like, how can we get involved in marketing and all of this stuff? How can we make it cool? So I, I still like, I went back and found it that I like had this one set of, I would do these unasked for like presentations on how things could be better. And I was like, here's, and I remember I, I had this like cork board that I had two pieces of masking tape that were parallel. And then I drew in it this blue wavy line and that was the chasm. And it's the chasm from where things are to the badassery it could be. And, like, and it, you know, the what was really shitty about it and also awesome is that the owner really dug it. But my boss really hated it. Right. Which is, you know, very typically the situation. And so for me, there was like this excitement in seeing in the kind of context of these work environments, how things could be optimized and whatever. But for me, I feel like also at a fault of my own really got squashed in it. Right. And I got summarily dismissed with <laughs> a bodyguard next to me. <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. Now you're like a whole new level of cool. I mean, I thought you were cool before you had a bodyguard <laughs> escort you out. I've never had a bodyguard escort me anywhere. It was intimidating as fuck and particularly so because I had my computer and like everybody else, you have some of your own like random shit yeah. that you have on the computer. So I was like trying to copy files over as this guy like standing over me. It's just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, low-key traumatizing. But, <laughs> but what I so resonate with you is that, and I saw the potential, I just knew I wasn't the person who was able to do that, to be able to thrive enough mm -hmm. to continue to disrupt and shift. So I guess there isn't a question there. I just wanted <laughs> well, you to know, share that with you. I, yeah, I feel like I, I had an experience like that, but minus the escort, I, I know it's like low-key traumatizing, but at least having somebody who's like intimidating, like take you out of the place seems like cooler to tell as a story than like mine was just kind of like, um, Tanya, we're letting you go. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was not like, but, but you know what you're reminding me? I know it wasn't a question, but you're reminding me of an exercise that I, I give to my clients who are feeling stuck and maybe in spaces where they don't belong or they can't express themselves. And so I'll, I'll share that with you. It's like, I felt trapped. You see my whole body went like, uh, what is yeah. your the, this story of being like, you know, intimidated and somebody's hunching over you and you're like trying to like download your files and shit. It's like, oh. um, so you make two columns on a piece of paper. Column A, you write down all the places that you feel stuck. 
Column B, you write down all the places that you feel free. You pick one from A, one from B, and then you have to create a bridge between the two. So for example, if you feel stuck in your cubicle or now home office, but you feel free in nature, how are you going to bring some nature into your home office? Or are you going to bring your home office into nature? Like, you know, so this idea of these sort of rigid siloed spaces is just bullshit. It's really mindset. And so how do we, how do we actually bring those, those spaces that make us feel free inside of the ones that make us feel less free? I love that because, oh, and I keep looking up this term that of course I'm going to butcher that I keep wanting to remember. I want it to stick because this comes up a lot is the, the brain has this like reflex of answering the questions that you give it. And I think it's like this superpower that we don't really think to leverage is just to ask our brain different questions. Mm, And just like with that, like, is there a way that I can do this? Is there a way, like, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. And because we have this sort of reflex, we are able to come up with this like just cascade of ideas that we wouldn't have had access to if we were seeing it within this certain framework. Yeah. And, you know, because you come from visual arts, because you have an MFA, I just have a BA. I'm not going to lie about that. (laughs) But I've done a lot of work in therapy on ego. So I'm fine with that. (laughs) So this is as, as artists, one of the things that we learn early on as visual artists or as writers or any kind of artist is to ask what if questions. That's right. something we're trained in, something we've got in our back pocket. So when we do feel stuck in a mindset, in a cubicle or whatever, we can ask ourselves, well, what if, you know, what if I didn't feel stuck? What if I could, you know, make my cubicle um, a, a film production studio? So it allows for possibilities beyond this moment um, in time and space. What if? And it's something that people who are listening will love if they haven't taken the what if question and stuck in your back pocket. So the next time you feel like you're trapped, go, what if? What yes. If? Yeah. yeah. It's so, so, so powerful. So one of the things I want to ask you is because I just, you know, some people it's like, how are we the same person? I love this. Yeah. This is awesome. What's your mom's name? <laughs> my, yeah. My mom's yeah. name is Diana. Who was? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, your mom's French. I don't know. Well, no, there are lots of Dianas in France, I think. Right. I, don't. <laughs> I know that was, that would have been too perfect. Um, <laughs> but my mom was growing up the eccentric, emotional, artist, single mom. My biological father was the very charismatic con man. (laughs) And we both had nerd glasses from the time we were, well, in my case, I was two because I was actually born with a cross eye. So I had a pirate patch and then glasses for forever. Are you trying to one up my astigmatism? Okay. (laughs) Hashtag winning. (laughs) Okay, I was four when I got my glasses, total like thicky thick. I've, I'll send you a picture. I should send that as my headshot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, totally. But my single mom, my mom used to, I mean, from France, immigrant. She loved like belly dancers and stinky cheese parties and like artists and joy. I could have been a Republican so easily because you know how like you, you know how people kind of like push back as a kid like, yeah. you know, against your parents. 
Well, because my mom was like, if you ever want to smoke marijuana, you let me know so I get it. So it's not uh, laced with LSD. I'm like, fuck no, I'm never going to smoke <laughs> marijuana. You're disgusting. And I'll be voting for Reagan soon. No. <laughs> well, you know, the reason I never did drugs was because my mom always told me about the time that she did so many hits of acid that she tripped solidly for a week communicating with aliens and couldn't get back into her body. <laughs> did she yeah. speak? She, she, did she have a career as a motivational speaker in grade schools? I feel like she should now. Like that should very much be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids. Just say no, because you could end up uh, uh, talking to aliens for a really, really long time until you lose sense of time and space. Right. Not as fun as you would think. Oh my God. That's, in, that's intense. My mom was, as she said, a flower child, not a quote unquote hippie because hippies did drugs. Flower children just made love. So, Oh, okay. The distinction my, I was not aware of. Neither was I until my mom assured me that is true. She's so sensitive in this. I inherited my mom's sort of like sensitive, like biology. I didn't drink alcohol for a long time or do any drugs because I was on my way to being like very conservative. <laughs> but, um, um, and, and then when I did, it was like oh, one drink just knocked me out completely. Yeah. Maybe somebody had slipped me something. I don't know. <laughs> it was the early days of going to the lesbian bars, so it could have happened. No, but um, yeah, my mom never did drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Just like wild parties. And I love your mom just already like caring about her. But what, what I'm curious about is this confluence of characters, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that, at least for me, and I'm curious what you think about it, what, how you end up gaining characteristics and your map of the world when you have characters that have very different ways of relating to things. Mm -hmm. And like when I think for myself, my super gregarious, I'm pretty sure he's a sociopath as well, biological father, who was also a paparazzo, if you can believe that. So I definitely was not going to be a photographer. Definitely was, I was just going to be a straight laced. Uh, 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 and of course that didn't work out. But I really didn't want to connect with people in that way. And I was always very distrusting about the way I was connecting with people because I would see how he would be able to just hyper connect and bedazzle razzle situation. And then, <laughs> and then people would be like, what? Like celebrities would kind of be like, why is this man have his hand around my neck? I don't know, but I like it. Hi, getting kisses from like people. There's no way, you know, just, mm, yeah. And it's embarrassing for me to even think about, but I do know that there's a lot that I just learned through osmosis that I leverage every day. So I'm curious about that. Yeah. That mix of characters and what you feel like you've taken from both. I, well, first of all, I love your description and we'll look forward to your memoir. Um, <laughs> secondly, yeah, I, I, you know, I used it for a long time as I was kind of growing up and, and graduated from college. I got a degree in theater, um, which my parents totally supported. I didn't realize that there were social cues along my path that uh, what I was doing wasn't right. Like I wasn't getting a degree in business. I wasn't getting a degree that I could quote unquote use. Mm -hmm. However, my parents supported me along the way and thought that was a really good idea. And then uh, when I get into like traditional workspaces, I, everybody else had studied the thing that we were doing or had learned the thing. And I didn't. 
what I, my parents really taught me the cornerstones for doing being and like anything in the world because my mom you know as you were saying she was all about cultivating creativity and she actually um, believed that creativity was currency and so even though we were poor we were like section eight housing single mama three kids my mom working two jobs while getting her degree in social work, which you know, was not going to be a moneymaker. Um, you know, but what she would do is she'd exchange her talents or her creativity for us going to summer camp. So like she would be the cook at summer camp so we could go for, for free or in exchange. Yeah. Or, you know, she would like make a, a quiche to pay the guy to, to, you know, the fix-it guy to repair our sink, you know? And so she taught us that creativity was currency. And then my dad was, um, my dad just, my dad passed away about a year and a half ago. And I was such a like love. He was a New York taxi cab driver as a profession. And then um, anyway, he's wonderful. I read about him in the book. You can read all about him there, but he was like a, um, a small time gambler. Like he would go to Las, Las Vegas was his jam and he would like hit the craps table. And um, to my dad, you know, a New Yorker winning for him was like breaking even and having enough to buy a steak dinner, you know, like that's it. So basically I learned from my dad that, you know, gambling or taking a risk, having fun, you know, being with a community of people that are cheering you on was like the best profession ever you know and so between these two sort of quirky like creativity's currency and like take risks and gamble and have fun that really became the foundation for everything I do in the world and kind of everything I I am and champion as well you know people in communities that I really give a shit about are also finding ways to take risks that are generative um, and and have fun or some sense of like respect and camaraderie while you're doing it and then hope for the best. Anyway, so that's that, that's my weird family background. And so the cornerstones for success for me was like, I'm taking a risk. Okay, I guess I'm successful. <laughs> there, was, there wasn't that, you know, so even though I didn't have a clear map for how to succeed in the world, because my parents didn't like go, you know, my mom went to school, but nobody else in her family went to through formal education channels. And my dad didn't, you know, his education stopped after high school and he sort of worked and it bounced around between working in liquor shops and driving a cab. And I, I didn't have a clear map for success. And it wasn't until probably my 30s that I'm like, oh, this weird Wiley map is even better than any clear map that anyone could have prescribed or given to me. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel very lucky to have been brought up by human beings who are wildly unconventional and taught me how to be unconventional, too. It's been pretty like lucrative emotionally, spiritually, and financially too. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I just, the thing to me about our upbringing is that there is, I mean, you spend so much of your life just like ugh, annoyed, wishing that it was different, right? Like I always was deeply resentful that we had boobs all over my house because my mom's a sculptor. And so there were just boobs everywhere. And that, you know, now like, I know, I know. Oh, <laughs> like, oh. I have them all over my house mm -hmm. now. But uh, but then also my friends always wanted to be friends with my mom. Yeah. And that I just always felt like so annoyed and frustrated because it always felt like a comparison between me and this super charismatic, sparkling, talented woman that she was. And like a great example is I, I've never still really put any time or investment into drawing 
because she is so deeply mm. skilled mm. that as a five-year-old, as a 10-year-old, when you're asked to draw and then you turn around and you see your parents, it, it like my brain was like, nope, we, we got to go and do something else. It kind of worked the, in the reverse for me. I started writing at a very early age, like five or six years old, and then have kept journals for, I mean, I can't tell, I have boxes and boxes of like Dang. padded floral journals, <laughs> you know, like weird, whatever. Um, I, I just loved writing ever since I, I wrote skits. I wrote funny operas as a kid. Like I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And as a result, uh, um, my mom then, she started taking creative writing classes. And, and so, I, you know, so it kind of worked conversely, but she felt free to do that because it was sort of like, Oh, I, I, and my mom was actually a really good writer, you know, and probably wouldn't have discovered that if that wasn't something I had chosen to do, just like, you know, my mom has chosen to like, she's a wonderful cook, like mm -hmm. an amazing chef. So I don't, I don't tread into that type of territory. I like to eat out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I, yeah, I understand. I know, but having like, having these like wonderfully like embodied parents are kind of amazing as American kids. Right. You know? and, the, and being able to have enough perspective and enough time to be able to really deeply value that. Like there were so many for me, there were so many ways in, in which I was squished by different imposing forces of how I should be and expectations and all of these things. And so to have this space of reprieve from that, was so just, I mean, like, I will never be able to express the gratitude for like this world that she created where it was just like, anything goes, we have tie dye couches, oh my God. everything else is a black and white. And we actually did once get in trouble for rollerblading only because we busted one of her sculptures. Um, yeah, I still feel bad we, about that one. We might be related. I, you know, uh, yeah. And, and to your point, well, my mom painted when we were little, like four years old, painted an entire wall, like blood red. How do you think that impacted my psyche? And then the first, and my, my mom would take me to see like movies because she was, you know, she was from France. So I guess like in France, you take like five-year-olds to see a Woody Allen movie. I remember watching uh, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex, but we were more afraid to ask as a kid. And the one scene I remember is the giant booby, like sort of like rolling down the street. And I think that's why I'm a lesbian. So yeah, uh, yeah I tried, I tried to blame it on my mom. <laughs> Yeah. And what I'm sure she's like, yeah, you're totally. No, she wasn't. Well, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my time being embarrassed by my, my parents growing up for jerseys and, and, uh, thank God for insight because really all I wanted to do was fit in. I mean, I don't know right. any other child that's shoved into an American school system that doesn't want to just fit in unless you have like the privilege of going to like Montessori school or, or like Waldorf or somewhere fancy and like where they just surround you and love you. I didn't have that shit. I went to public school. And, and, and so I was just embarrassed by everything. Like my mom's French accent or stinky cheeses that she'd put in my lunchbox and that we were poor and that my dad like was driving a taxi. That's not a job. Um, you know, and, and, um, so thank goodness they did all that weird stuff that embarrassed me because now I, I celebrate them and, and in writing, I mean, I write about them all the time. They've given me material, <laughs> um, and lessons that I've learned from them either directly or inadvertently, <laughs> um, has really served, you know, creative trespassing. All, like I was all, just going to say, long. it Jeez. sounds like it has them all over it. So let's talk about creative trespassing because the concept is so exciting to me yeah. 
Because really what it does, and we'll dig into the definition, but really what it does is it combats the apathy that we can show up with all the time, right? The blaming the external environment. And I'm guilty of this a lot where it's just like, mm, I have ADHD. There's not enough stimulation over here. Like, you know, bleh. and I love this framework for, yeah, shaking it the fuck up and really taking onus for your own experience in anything, including the white box that we might find ourselves in. Yeah, I think that the really the concept of creative trespassing happened before I knew it as creative trespassing, which is going to theater school. I mean, the really, there's two foundations for, for being in theater. One is like an empty space, <laughs> right? And two is suspension of disbelief. So you've got to create an entire world with nothing, especially if you're in college and you've got to think about an audience and how you invite them in and what you, how you want them to feel and what you do and then how they leave. And you're also going to ask them to like suspend disbelief and just pretend that everything I'm going to show you and everything we're going to do is just like, quote unquote, real for now. Is that okay with you? Oh, great. And so that as a, a foundation for being in any space, I approach every single space that I'm in as a black box theater, you know, which is like a black box theater, you have nothing. You have nothing. You, yeah. you, I mean, maybe you have a light, a couple of chairs, and that's it. And then the performance has to begin. And whether that performance starts on Monday at 9 a.m. <laughs> because you're going to work, like it sort of doesn't matter what the space is. You still have to create something engaging and delighting to your audience, your clients, whomever you're inviting into that space. And so that became the, the foundation. And, and I think also, G, and I bet you have this problem as well, which is, you know, I would work at all these companies like a tech company in a museum with like a theater degree, like no prior training. Yes. And people would be like, um, so what do you do? And they wanted like my job title. And I was like, um, I am the, you know, curator of shenanigans, <laughs> you know, I am. And so I, I, and I started seeing not just my value in, in going into these places and using creativity to solve everyday problems, but that other people sort of had that ability too. And if we are there already, then we need to call ourselves something. So people in companies and corporate situations can see we're there and we are adding to this shit and we're valuable. And so I'm like, okay, so what do I do? And so I started writing down, okay, well, creative, da, 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 da. And then I'm like, well, I bring it into places where it it's not invited, but it totally belongs. Oh, that's trespassing. <laughs> and so I, I started putting language together and that became the foundation for creative trespassing. And then I kind of beta tested it out. Like I was giving talks about the, it was never dressed campaign. And before that about, you know, disrupting museum culture. And I kind of like throw in a little something about creative trespassing. And I noticed that people would come up to me after my talks and like in hushed tones say, you know, I, I actually, I'm a writer, you know, in my free time or like, I love music. I play the clarinet at home. And I'm like, why are you talking to Hush Jones? Why can't you say this in your place of employment? Don't they know how awesome this would be to learn about you? And so I realized there were, there were other creative trespassers in the world. And maybe by identifying this way for being, people would start claiming this moniker, like I am a creative trespasser and I belong here. I belong everywhere. Yes. So that was kind of like the, the, 
inception or thinking about what it is that we do in the world. Well, and what I love about that so much is that we tend to code creativity as this capital C venture Mm -hmm. where you have a creative job, like let's say photographer, and you are showing up in this way and creating abstract connections and everybody else is not supposed to be doing that thing. And I've seen people over and over again be extremely creative with like, I mean, today is tax day, right? Like be extremely creative with accounting and (laughs) many other, (laughs) many other places, but not actually use that language to really identify, Hey, this comes from the same place. It's creating things using our imaginations. And, and what I love about that framework is that it's giving people permission to really understand the way that they're showing up as being creative just just that is i think a revolutionary idea for a lot of people totally and you know there are as you're talking about there are and people who are listening or watching mm-hmm. um there are two c's of creativity um they call the the little c of creativity is a skill that anyone can learn and it comes from a researcher patricia stokes did this study you do know the study it's like a, the funniest study when i learned it i was just like this is the coolest thing ever so she took two groups of rodents what what could be better and they both had to push a bar so one group of rodents could use both their front paws to push the lever the other group had a one paw paw like tied behind their back i don't know they could only use one so the group of two two armed rodents were like push the bar push the bar push the bar push the bar the group of one arm rodents were like push the bar push the bar oh behind the back oh under the leg up high down low too slow they they (laughs) they discovered like hundreds of ways to push the bar and that's the point of the little sea of creativity is that we are hardwired as animals to come up with you know use our imagination to come up with myriad ways to solve everyday problems bam that is genius and you know i mean i'm a little bit smarter than a rodent but not much because there's one right there in my yard no i can't um and i can't get rid of it anyway um and so that that study proved and then there are lots of other studies that we all possess this ability. And it's about cultivating it just like any other skill. You're not like, oh, I think I'm going to be a tennis pro and I'm just going to start tomorrow. It's like, no, you do a little bit incrementally. And then pretty soon your reflex is you're using your imagination to solve an everyday problem. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be a painter. That's the big C of creativity. We all got the little C's. You just need to cultivate that. I mean, that's what's happening right now. I was actually just talking to my speaking agent who she's like, are you getting any inquiries? Like everything's dried up. And I'm like, I am because, <laughs> because every, every company or organization that did not give a shit about tapping into the little C of creativity, using imagination to solve everyday problems now needs to and fast. And they are needing to learn that skill and actually practice it. And when I've worked with, you know, larger companies that are scaling, the first thing, you know, they're all about like, they'll have like vinyl lettering on the wall that says innovate yeah. and like creativity. And da, da, da. Fail and, harder. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> fail fast, fail faster, fail, just fail. 
Um, and and the, the first thing to go when they start to scale is the creativity and the imagination, the things that they loved and championed so much. And then what they're preaching at the top level, the on the ground realities are, are totally out of whack. And so um, this is something that all companies, organizations, and human beings need to do right now. Good news is you can start whenever, is practicing creativity every single day, bam. One of the things I loved about your book is you have all these art references, right? And it makes me think when I did, which the MFA that I got was just out of fear and ego that I thought I needed to get this degree in order to be able to be the type of person who can make things for a living. Spoiler alert, (laughs) didn't help at all with that. However, it did give me this like maze labyrinth of experiences that I can draw from. And one superpower, which is being able to create a context for what I'm doing, because you have to defend your work during six hour long critiques. So you need to be able to say the why, the how, what you're drawing from with this, you know, this thing. But one of the things that I wish I could just like shout from the rooftops that I think people really get wrong, that the art world really promotes is that these are spaces of creativity, right? That these Mm -hmm. art institutions and that it's this insular thing and only these artists or whatever. And what I definitely found is that there were just as many rules, just Mm -hmm. as many boxes, just as many like unspoken status quo type of situations that you would be bumping up against. And I just wish that I could help dispel this myth that there's a difference, right? Mm -hmm. That like, if you go over here in the, well, like for me in the entertainment industry or the creative with commercial photography, again, everywhere you go, you're going to bump up against all of this stuff that you're trying to run away from Mm -hmm. that is, you know, the the cubicle lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are some aspects of it that are free and wonderful, but I love what you posit is that, you can find those aspects no matter where you find yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And also what you're talking about is the unfortunate part. I mean, again, this isn't specific to America, but since I live in America and the foundation for America is capitalism, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what you're talking about is adding that extra layer of sort of viscous shit that we need to consider when creating or making that we will offer it to an audience is that an art and we might charge money for it and and all this kind of stuff but conversely you know i married a professor of art and she's awesome and what she teaches her students and what's really important and the sort of flip side of what you're talking about is process and practice and context. And so, you know, we talk about in art and art making as a practice, right? And we talk about medicine, doctors practice medicine and, you know, professional athletes practice, they go to practice. And so when I learned, you know, writing, like creative writing, it was a practice for me. And so when we shift our mindset and and focus on what we're doing as a practice or process rather than a product, then it changes everything. It allows us that clear space to create without worrying about 
Who's going to buy it? What's it worth? Da, 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 mm-hmm. All that stuff. There's actually a really great quote by John Cage. Um, and I don't have it uh, memorized at all. But it's basically like when we go to our studios or offices or our sacred space, we go there with everyone. We're, we arrive in our front of our computer basically with like our past lovers, our, our teachers, our haters, our, you know. And slowly as we start to do our thing, you know, whether that's making art or, or writing or whatever, one by one, they each leave the room and then we're left alone with our, our process. Mm-hmm. And so I remember that because, again, sometimes we get caught up in the commerce, like writing a book. Oh, I have to consider like people might read it. Oh, how are they going to read it? Who's going to publish it? That stuff. You know, if I worried about all those things, I wouldn't ever write a book, <laughs> you know, right. honestly. And so it's a good practice to remember. I am practicing. This is about being imperfect. Guess what we call it? Drafts. There are several drafts. Guess what? You know, when you make a photograph, you can addition them. You can throw them out. You know, like you don't have to print them all, you know. Um, And and I'm sure when you're working with clients professionally, you'll show them like 50. And they'll be like, I like those two. And you're like, okay, I can get those two. And the rest go away. And that's fine because it's a practice. Um, And so anyway, I think that there are two sites. And then context you learned in, in, I didn't get my MFA. I took one class in an MFA program and I'm like, they had me read 50 pages. I am out. So I left. Um, Understandable. So much happier. Rough. rough. The readings were rough. Yeah. Honestly, I I literally came home. I did it as like I was working at the museum and I'm like, I'm an overachiever. Everything's going really well in my career. I would like to go to graduate school while working (laughs) and while raising a small child in the form of a French bulldog named Felix. I'd like to take that on. So I anyway. the confidence in that. Yeah. Yeah. So I go and I come back and I tell my professor wife, oh, they must have made a mistake. They wanted me to read 50 pages. She's like, there's no mistake. <laughs> it's hard. And I'm like, peace out. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I tell you, I, so my degree before that was in psychology. And yeah, so I went in, I did not know who like, the Michael Jordans of the art world were. So I didn't know who Duchamp, Cindy Sherman, like any of these, Donald Judd, any of these people, Yoko Ono, like all I knew about Yoko Ono was that she was the person who probably broke up the Beatles. Like, and so, you know, so talk about like, I think it was just like naivete that I thought like, hey, I'm just gonna show up in this and then just got hit so hard. Which again, like it was such a transformational experience that I am so grateful to have gone through, but it very much was this kind of being raked across the coals in a lot of instances, because the whole first year is like dismantle everything, you know, read all this shit, question, dismantle everything, you know, but then the second year is create this amazing Mm -hmm. piece and write a thesis around it. And that just in and of itself felt like whiplash. But the part that really resonated with me was not even so much looking at the work, but the whole idea of like appropriation or Mm. conceptual art just in and Mm. of itself that like you can make a piece that doesn't exist. You can make candy wrappers, right? (laughs) I know that's one of that piece. Yes. You can just bend and break the rules. And so the dichotomy there Mm is the thing that I think very much exists everywhere where there are 
ways in which you, and granted that art space, there are all of these wired in processes and techniques to help you break things. And so it is a really beautiful, amazing training ground for that. But then there are a lot of these rules and what's valued even. Like I remember for me, I kept having to defend the fact that my work was glossy and sexy and leveraging the aesthetic mm -hmm. of magazines mm -hmm. because that was seen as less valuable and mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. than other aesthetic strategies, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know, like I just going through that, I think really helped me realize that I can't run away from this thing. Like I'm always going to be bumping up against people who don't get it, who yeah. aren't cool with it, who are threatened by it. And there's no space that is going to be a hundred percent just rules out the window because then shit wouldn't get done. Right. And you also come from a little bit of performance. I do. In right. So the only thing that I was trained in theater school, like the only skills that they gave you to get a job was I had two contrasting monologues and I knew how to audition. <laughs> anyway, all that to say is it's so subjective, right? Like people looking at your work and quote unquote valuing it. I, I, I have three coaching clients right now, all writing books and they're excited and also scared. Like what if I give my book proposal to a publisher or an agent or both? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, that's why there are thousands of agents, thousands of publishers. Right. And so the sooner we accept, it's subjective. There are things we don't like. We have biases running through, uh, coursing through our veins. Some we're conscious of, some are unconscious. Da, da, da. And so the less we take that personally and the more we realize, oh, that's that may not be the right audience for my work. This is why beta testing is such an awesome thing I learned in technology. I mean, I learned in play, playwriting school as like, different drafts or, or iterations and things like this, but you test it out. You have like a stage reading, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're beta testing a technology and you offer it to your intended audience. And they're like, that sucks, or that's awesome, or that's funny. And you're like, this is a serious play, you know, whatever. <laughs> but you take that feedback and you make it better, but you're not making it better for everybody. You're making it better for your intended audience. Right. So I think that that's a really keen thing to keep in mind for those people who are listening or watching is as you're creating things or even creating the, like a resume, who's your intended audience? And if that and if they say no, maybe you ask, oh, well, what, what is it about this that, you know, can you give me some feedback? And some people will say no, because they aren't the right person for what you're offering. And that's okay. You could take your wares and your glossy, beautiful photographs, your Pierre and Gilles situation, and you can go somewhere else because there are people who are ready and excited to receive your work. You just mm -hmm. have to find them. Yes. And I love that you spoke to my heart just then because they are the, like my photography soul twins. No way. Yeah. Nobody ever knows. I love, I mean, I'm like a child of the eighties. I know I look young, but I do have a four in the 10 scone. So anyways, <laughs> um, I used to love like that, like high glossy yeah. sort of like homoerotic Pierre and Gia, like, mm, yes. mm, like Paloma Picasso with like crabs and it was amazing. Yeah. And David LaChapelle is somebody. Oh that, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It's just like, mm. Yeah, I'm in it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have like two more things that I really want to like pull out. One, 
let's just get sticky first. Okay. Oh, so feel goodness. free to tell yeah. me to fuck off. But what I'm very curious about for people like yourself, where so much <laughs> of your job is like what I do is it's strategic vulnerability, right? So it's vulnerability insofar as it can help motivate yeah. the story or, you know, things like that. And also mindset work, because okay. so much of that yeah. is really helpful, yada, yada, yada. But you're a human. So what does the other side of that feel like? Because mm-hmm. most, and how does that show up for you? Because Maybe most people, just I know, <laughs> feel free to grab a tissue. Um, because most I people, I'd say myself included, and I don't know if this is true for you, but like the more amped up, excitable, mm-hmm. positive, energetic, and like just essence that you have to bring to the situation usually houses an equally counterpoint to that. And I know definitely the ways in which it shows up for me where, you know, I will be on and rocking and rolling. And then thankfully, you know, my partner at the Fox who's just fucking phenomenal. <laughs> she gets me when I'm curled up in a bowl talking about how my brain doesn't work and how I'm so far behind in my life mm-hmm. from where I want to be and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious for you, how does that counterpoint really show up? And when does it tend to be activated in your life? When you were talking about people who want to express joy at this time, but it's sort of not the right time. And, you know, because they're they're unjoyous or like really bad things going on. And I was saying, you know, we, we coexist with joy and with anger and all that kind of stuff. To be honest, and it's something I wish everybody would take full advantage of if you have a copay for magic, a.k.a. therapy. But in all fairness, my mom was a social worker. So I grew up knowing language to express oneself. I grew up knowing that therapy was not just viable. It was a necessity. Mm -hmm. I grew up feeling comfortable and safe getting therapy. When I experienced sort of major, you know, breakups, when I went through cancer, you know, kind of like the big plot points on my map. I always went to therapy. And then as like a 30-something adult, I just went to therapy. And so I realized that I trained to have the skills and tools in creativity, not therapy and the brain. And so I go to therapy. And now in the last probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years, those parts are more integrated. So to your point, I'm in my 20s, Gia, I totally was all like, yeah, and because I'm an extrovert, too. Right. I'm an extrovert and my job has been performing in some context or another, whether that's like motivational speaking or literally on a stage in a theater doing a one person show. Mm-hmm. And so I would be like, ah! and then I would go back to my hotel room or whatever. And I was just like, okay, I feel lonely. Um, and so years of really working on letting go of ego, of experiencing sadness in the same time that I'm experiencing joy, like allowing myself to cry. Those are all things that I've learned. And so it's not that I don't feel sad. I, you know, obviously I'm a human. I feel sad, angry, all all the parts. Um, And I've been really good at allowing myself to just feel them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because I gave a talk and my father had just passed away and I was scheduled to give a talk at this big tech conference called Pluralsight. And I was reading the quote by Audre Lorde. That was part of my, my talk. And I started to tear up 
like just organically, because it was just so wrong. And it's about mortality. It's about speaking and using voice in the face of mortality. And, and so I just started to cry and then I just stopped and held the space and, and allowed myself to tear up and, and then continued on as a professional. The professional part is allowing a space for something, an organic feeling to come up and to be expressed and also taking care of the audience so they don't feel like they need to take care of me, that they can also have their emotional response to what they're feeling, what's coming up to. And so I took this time and space. And then after the talk, I kind of wasn't processing how I did or didn't do. And people kind of came up on Moss and, you know, hugged me and wanted to be close because it's like we had this with a shared moment of understanding what it meant to be alive. And so I found that the more I allow myself and don't stop myself from feeling in the moment when feelings come up, but I'm aware of it and I can focus it, the better I am and the less uh, disparity there is between this Tanya, the like, whoa, Tanya, and the like, oh man, that sucks. Or like, I'm fucking angry, Tanya. So that's sort of the ultimate goal I have of being alive is to... to, Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah, I love that. Although I'm still like, I'm curious what your bratty, like what your bratty go-to story is or, you know what I mean? Because, yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, Yeah, yeah. my bratty go-to. Okay, you know, we're in a pandemic. You're familiar with that situation. True story, yeah. Okay, and as far as I know, there's one thing that we can do is, you know, wear a mask. And basically um, the gesture is literally uh, like to lift it up over your face is like, I I don't know about you, I don't go to the gym right now, but like, it doesn't take much energy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, And it's like, it's a collective gesture. It's a gesture of goodwill saying, listen, you know, whether you've been vaccinated, you've already had COVID, like it's just saying like, I I respect uh, sharing the earth with you, my friend. And so a lot of people don't do that. And I was walking the other day in my, this fair city where I'm living and I saw two people seem very happy and on vacation and maskless and in a very densely populated area with people. Everybody's wearing masks except for these two folks. And as I'm walking past them about to share a very tiny sidewalk, they're not moving, they're not putting on masks. So I say, hey, are you visiting our, our, our city? Yes, we are. I'm like, well, then you could put on a mask. And I feel totally comfortable telling them like to me, I mean, it angers me because it literally is the like least complicated gesture one can do. Right. To share space. And look, I've been vaccinated a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like I, I didn't do it because I wanted to. I'm not an anti-vexer, but I'm also, I went through cancer a bunch of times. I've had a lot of chemicals in my body that had effects later that are not awesome, that really suck. And so getting a vaccine was not on my list of priorities. However, being like a fellow human being was on my list. So I got it. I got all the things. And so I just feel like, yeah, so I I do get angry about that's my primary source of anger at this point um, in time. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. And I bet like your sword is sharpened when you like get in there real quick and are just like, listen, Linda, honey. (laughs) Yeah, really. That's right. That's right. Oh, wearing matching t-shirts. Then you could both put your masks up. Uh, see, and I am just like for the big, bold personality that I've always been, I'm very much like my mom where she's like doormat or mega bitch, nothing in between. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a little bit better trying to integrate them, but I am like the sit and stew mm-hmm. and like resting bitch face it up. 
unless it escalates to a point. And I just, I'm trying to get to that place where it's just like, it's so much better to just fucking say it. You have a sense of humor. So I, that's the skill I developed like to combat, like when I'm pissed off. So using humor kind of can defuse or escalate a situation really well. But yeah, I remember your uh, reminding me of time when I was in college and I was sitting outside on the, on the lawn at ASU and all these dudes were like, you know, faggot, gay, faggot, blah, blah, blah. And I was just out like recently out as a lesbian and they're like, and then they were making fun of, you know, gay people and going mm. like a lisping yeah. and, uh, you know, cause you know, all gays lisp. Um, and so I turned to them and I'm like, I'm not all of us lisp. And, and they, they shut the fuck up. And so, the, you know, I wasn't, I didn't say like, shut the fuck up. I just, right. you know, pointed out an inequity. And so using humor has actually been my superpower in these situations where I feel uncomfortable, threatened, or like there's an inequity at play. And I use it all the time. Like I use it professionally, personally, walking down the street, um, because it's also disarming. Talk about disrupting. People are expecting you, like you, not you, Gia, but us, to yes. be either like mean or nice. There's a very like, like Americans love binary, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, they don't understand that in between space in lots of different contexts, but right. humor kind of disarms them. It's like, oh, she's being kind of funny and charming, but well, she also said that I, I'm a rude, horrible person. <laughs> I love it. I'll put up my mask. Anyway, but um, yeah, I find that that's, that's been the skill that I've cultivated most to deal with. Okay. I'm glad that you mentioned humor because that was one of the things in researching you and engaging with your work that was just so like pacing timing. You can definitely tell that you are well-trained because it is just like, boom, boom, boom. Any moment that as a listener, a reader, where you would start to have that kind of like click outable maybe mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. you zing in with this kind of like hilarity is that a word hilarity I feel yeah, like it is now totally, if, totally. if not and I'm curious how you it definitely because it definitely feels a just like the fiber of your being but it also feels like there's a pacing and a structure to it mm-hmm. that feels very strategic so how do you map out and frame and leverage humor in the work that you do Well, the cool thing about humor is that it comes off like from places of discomfort and othering and and inequity. And it's magic because it seems to heal discomfort Mm -hmm. and inequity. And those are the ways in which I use it. So one thing I do, I use as a strategy, which I'm sure you learned in your fancy MFA program, which is juxtaposition, right? Yeah. Putting two things. Okay. Oh, same applies in humor. So putting two things that seemingly don't like are disparate or don't belong together, together to create new meaning. Mm -hmm. So and this is my favorite joke when I was speaking in front of like 500 to a thousand men, this big tech conference, there was like 500 dudes and um, they're like CI chief information officers. So they're technology based, no theater. So what I do is I say, Hey, um, you know, are there any, um, I have my degree in theater or any other, you know, thespians here. And it's just like crickets. Right. And then I'm like, okay, any lesbians? And they're like, what the fuck? Like, it's just so confusing. But what I've, what I've done in that moment, I've played with sounds, with things sounding similar, Mm -hmm. lesbian, lesbian. And I play, I play with things sounding similar. I'll, I'll I'll give you another example of that. So that's one way. 
to use humor. And then also I called attention to an inequity. I'm the only woman in that space. I'm the only lesbian in that space. That is weird and uncomfortable. And why? And and yeah. that's so it's planting like the humor seed. And then they start laughing. They're like, oh, so weird. weird. And they'll think about afterwards. Um, there was a company I gave a talk for. Their name was is Moz, M-O-Z. So I said, hey, it's like two lesbians um, who are talking to their teenage son uh, and the teenage son is like, my ma's are, are bringing me down. Like you're living in New Jersey, whatever. It's not funny right the second, but it was, it killed. Um, anyway, the point is, is so one thing is I do, I play with the sound, a, a sound that's familiar, ma's. I, they know their own name. It's their company, ma's. And then I'm like, ma's, what is that? Oh, it sounds like a New Jersey teenage kid going, ma's, get off my back. Get off. And they think it's so funny because I've taken something that they see every day that is familiar to them. And I turned it in a different way. And they're like, what? I never even thought of that. Yeah. So now their minds are open to seeing things that they see every single day anew. What's so fascinating to me about that is how we can transmute energy, right? I don't know why I had to like, just quite ridiculously oh, make that. <laughs> For transmute. <laughs> Woo! Uh, but like we talk about in, in YouTube and video about pattern interrupts, right? Mm -hmm. That there are just things you can shake somebody out of their expectations. And I think humor is such a, a beautiful way of doing that. But then also the imagery that you pull into it mm -hmm. is so absurd mm -hmm. that, you know, that it's just, ah, I wish I, I should have made a note of some of the examples in your book. You just are going to have to get the book because yeah. there were so many times I was, you know, that like I would be embarrassed if I wasn't by myself, but you know, I listen to books cause I have a, a hard time like retaining information if I'm reading them. So I'll like have it on and I'm like cleaning or whatever. And then I will just laugh loudly <laughs> without any awareness that it's out loud. And then all of a sudden you like catch yourself. You're like, okay, nobody's That's here to awesome. judge me. <laughs> okay. Best critique ever. Where were you in undergrad? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, but so I'm glad to hear like some of the process behind it and just like how you frame it. Because I think that with a lot of other things, and this goes back to acting and stage presence and things like that, people tend to think that it's just you're born with it. No. It's totally cultivated. And actually one other way in which I use humor, which reminded me of the reason why you're laughing is because I'm falling down. Like it's like the, like the banana peel of my life, you know? <laughs> so when, you know, I, I gave a TEDx talk, it, it was like a TEDx talk for like science technology, like a STEM one. And I started out by saying, I don't belong here. Like, what the hell? You guys are like scientists and da, da, da. And so immediately there was like some giggling and, and discomfort because I'm being vulnerable. And then when I fall down, when I like fish out of water, people laugh because we've all fallen down. We've all felt like, oh my gosh, I, I don't belong here. Why did anyone hire me to do this thing? I'm not qualified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, you know, that's a way I don't, I don't make fun of myself. I'm not, like, I don't believe in like, um, you know, the, the humor that um, it's self-deprecating self yeah. stuff is not my jam because, you know, I've had to work so hard to value myself. <laughs> like, right. why would I undercut all my therapy? Yeah. I'd have to ask for the copays back and I don't want to. Um, and more often yeah. than not to a group of people who are in the dominant majority. Yeah. yeah. 
that kind of element always makes me feel a little squishy when it's like somebody who's bringing all of this complex minority-ish yeah. experience to the table and then self-deprecating for an audience of people no. who are predisposed to judge them anyways. No, no, yeah. I don't play like that. But, you know, yeah. So falling down people it, uh, think is funny too. Yeah, I love that. All right, you ready for the G-Speed round? Oh my God. Am I like rhetorical question? Like, I don't even know there was a speed round. <laughs> you're, doing you're, not, like, all the, you're not like all the other podcasters are like, we're going to do a speed round. So start thinking about your walk-on song. Cause that's the first question. I'm like, no, nope. I'm like, buckle up buttercup. We're going, oh, shit. we're okay. going. All right. So first thing, what is a line from a movie that is your, your go-to? <laughs> what the fuck? Mm-hmm. First thing that comes to mind. I know I'm trying to Here's what happens to my mind, okay? My mind is like, when you used to the record stores, uh, I'd, I'd be like, oh, I had all these records I wanted to buy. Now that I'm confronted with all of them, I can't remember any. Total douchebag. I don't know where that's from. That's the first one that came to mind. I'm sure it was 16 Candles. Go! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know how fast this is going to be, so considering I'm cracking up. All right, early teen heartthrob. Oh, Bruce Penhall. Oh, do I know Bruce Penhall? Like, and, oh my God, he was like, I don't know if it, he was in Chips or he was like the younger brother of one of the Chips, not like Ponch Poncharellas, but like the other one's brother. And he was just like super like blonde, surfery, buff dude. And in fact, I had a poster of that bitch up on my wall and my sister ripped it up down when she was pissed at me. So I took down her Duran Duran. Booyah. Fighting gestures. Now, did, here's, the, here's, the, here's the money question. Did you ever make out with the poster? How do you mean make out? Did you I'm ever practice? I, I, did I slow kiss it? No, <laughs> but it kissed me. Oh. Um, I don't, I'm not into posters. Next question. <laughs> I definitely did it on the back of my hand when I was Yeah, me too. Well, me too. Yeah, okay. I, We're normal. Actually, We're normal. You know what? I didn't really, like, it's a wonder I ever got to kiss another human. Like, I'm just sort of a nerd ball. So, I don't know. I, well, speaking of that, the next question I didn't is... Practice, oh, Oh no, go ahead. What were you going to say? I didn't practice because I didn't think I'd ever have that opportunity. Aww. <laughs> but look at you now. With I your know. I make out all partner. the time. <laughs> Winning. Okay. What if we teleport into your space, you are by yourself, you are engaging in the most dorktacular thing that you do, what would we witness? I'd be drinking a glass of white wine and eating popcorn, watching cooking shows. Yeah, <laughs> I love cooking shows, cooking competition, chops. Oh, I love them. I love them all. I love them all. I love them. And the popcorn I would have made on the stovetop by going like this, Oh. While wearing boxers and a t-shirt and my fat jiggling. Yes. <laughs> Put, uh, camera the, Put the camera in my house. That I'm, yeah, that I'm just happy to now live with yeah. in my mind. That makes me so happy. Okay. What is your most embarrassing moment? <laughs> I can't share that. <laughs> I'll wait. Was oh, this a pass? <laughs> I literally never had a guest pass on a question. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> It's, I, I, you know, it's sort of like that question where you're like, what's one thing you never tell anyone? Right. Yeah. Most embarrassing is so embarrassing. I wouldn't even tell you. Oh, that, you know what? I am getting secondhand embarrassment. Just imagine. Oh, my glasses are fogging up. I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs>
Okay, that say, qualifies. Let's just that say qualifies. Like, yeah, you sure. energetically transferred the I saw it in my mind's eye. I yeah. saw it in my okay. mind's eye. <laughs> okay. What is the most ridiculous yet wonderful theater warm-up that you remember? Alitalia. It's like a speed through. So you have to say the entire show as fast as you can. In, in like sort of hushed tones, like you're muttering it to yourself while you're walking around the stage like a crazy person. That sounds like a really good protection for potential muggings when you're walking down the street totally. by yourself. I've used it in the subway a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love it. Also, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. When you have to manifest energy out of thin air, what is your go-to song? Pump up jams. Mm. I love music so much. There's so many songs. Um, I don't know. You know, one song that comes to mind is all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Put your hands up. Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take all uh, I just hope you do the dance moves to it also. Then. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. That's one of my embarrassing things. Go Good. Because I was gonna say I don't want to be endlessly disappointed by you, but that would have done it. And so I'm glad that your status still stands with me. Awkward. Not that you asked. Um, no, thank you. Okay. What is a question that in all of your interviews and all of that stuff that nobody seems to ask you? That would actually be just a spectacular question that would get to something really juicy and interesting. Why are you so goddamn cute, Katan? <laughs> Come on, Katan. Oh, I thought you were saying that to me. I was like, no, no, oh, oh, awkward. Oh, whoa, whoa. Yeah, Apparently that's your question. You trip in. Uh... No, totally right. Like, why doesn't anybody just fucking call it? Like, like Tanya, you are cute. Can we yeah. talk about that? It's all about like, oh, you came up with a cool campaign or like you're a thinker. Like, I don't want to think. I just want to be cute. Well, I kind of said that. So not to like give myself too much credit here, but actually when we did our pre-pro meeting, I said, you're a mighty mouse, right? Oh, right. And we connected on being mighty mice. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm just, I'm just saying mm-hmm. that you're packing a punch in a small frame and by very nature of that, it's cute. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I appreciate this show. Um, what can I do? Be on it next week too. I'm feeling a little low. <laughs> just whenever you need a boost, yeah, yeah, whenever yeah, your therapist good. is out of country, Done. just come, just come back oh, on. Now that I know you have a degree in psych, I am going to. Okay, I'm not promising you'll be healed, okay, but you will have fine. a good time. Okay, sounds good. Almost last one. What does it mean to be a bold bitch? To use your voice in service of causes, people, and places that don't necessarily have access to their voice in that moment. That's what it means. So it's all about voice. Being a bold bitch. Mic drop. Okay. So last question is how can people connect with you because they've fallen in love with you? They want to dig deeper into your world. How can they just uh, get all the things? So first get recreative trespassing. Bam. Um, And read it because it will be helpful to you at this time in your work and in your life when we are feeling uncertain um, because the good news is all times are uncertain and creative trespassing um, will give you exercises and stories to help you work through that stuff. So that um, follow me on Instagram and you know what my name is? It's the unreal Tanya Katan. That's right, because Tanya Katan, spelled in my way, T-A-N-I-A, 
Catan was taken by a woman who had two children and I didn't want them to have to go to therapy. So I didn't want to be like, I'm the real Tanya Catan and your mom is an imposter. <laughs> so I was like, I'm the unreal Tanya Catan. But I, that's where I really like love to, to generate a lot of content for free and offer it up to, to human beings. And then finally go to tanyacatan.com and um, I have all of these delicious online mini courses that you could take that yes. I um, definitely um, curated and made with the feeling that I was there with you coaching you along the way. So I'm really excited about the online stuff that I got. Yes, I love that. And I actually went through one today, which I think was you supposed to be not like, overachiever. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, like, I think it was supposed to be a five-way course and I just like rambled through it at two times speed uh, because that's how my brain works. I love but it. It was phenoms. And it does yeah. totally feel like you are there with you and able just, there are these short kind of prompts and stories and just like it's packed into this condensed little nugget of a situation that really is just enough of that jolt out of mm -hmm. what it is that you're doing to, to get you on and moving yeah. through it. Yeah. Thanks, Gia. Yeah, I, I totally create them for like to disrupt the patterns and habits that are keeping people stuck at this time, because I've been working with so many amazing people who have books in them, who want to change jobs, who want to become photographers, and they're just, they're stopping themselves. So I've created courses for them to get the confidence to stop stopping and start starting. <laughs> stop stopping. <laughs> Oh, Tony Katan, you are so phenomenal. Your energy is infectious in a non-binary <laughs> way. Yes, in a non-viral <laughs> way. <laughs> um, and I'm just so grateful that you spent your time and energy with us because I think you're the shit. And you're I'm just so glad that you're out there doing the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And you too, I think you're projecting a little bit too, which is fantastic. Um, no, but for real, I was so excited to learn about who, like who you are and what you do in the world. And you are a creative trespasser through and through, and we might be separated by birth. Um, I'm going to tell my twin brother, he's kicked out. Bam! G is in. Oh. Uh, mm -hmm. I get primo twinsy real mm -hmm. estate. No, that... for real, I, I love also learning about the, the areas where our stories kind of overlap and intersect. It was really cool to learn about you as well. So thanks for having me, Gia. She is the best. She can do anything. Ah, oh, right. Oh, I love her so much. I am like secretly crossing my fingers that I can actually work with her as a coach because she's expensive, which is exactly how she should be. And right now I can't exactly financially prioritize being coached by her. But as soon as I can, I'm so excited because I just, you know, like they say that you're the sum of the five people you hang out with. I don't know how accurate that is. However, I do definitely know for a fact that seeing somebody who is walking the walk and is on the path that you want to be on on some level is so, it creates this resonance in your bones and this ability for you to make that thing a thing. I am just so excited that we got to share this episode with you. I'm so excited that we connected. And it's really one of the most amazing things about podcasts that I could ever think of is being able to connect with such amazing, wonderful, passionate, exuberant people who are out there in the world doing cool things. Like, I'm sorry, it was never a dress campaign. Like that was transformative. And that came from her brain. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I love it. Anyways, I also love you. You bold bitch, you showing up as yourself, you go into this week, be 
unapologetically yourself and know that I am just going to be loving you so hard. And I will see you next week. Bye. If you love this episode and the show, be sure to rate and review on iTunes and share it out in the world with a friend, family, frenemy, whatever feels good. You can follow us on Instagram at the bold bitch podcast. And we're waiting for you at the bold slash mafia. See you next week. Thank you.